Good morning. Uh, welcome here to Regen. Uh, my name is Kyle, and I am super glad to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest in the house, I'm super excited to see you. If you're joining online, I'm also glad to be looking at this camera where I assume you are on the other side. So there you are. Uh, but I am super glad to be with you today. I want to read a passage of scripture, and then we're going to worship together. Um, actually, would you mind standing if you're able, and we'll I read this passage last week and felt prompted to read it again uh, this morning. So, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Can I pray and then we'll worship together? Father, we come to you today in the fullness of our existence, but also hungry for you. So we're tired, we're worn out, we're joyful, we're energized but we're also here because we are hungering after you. We have come to meet you in this place this morning. And as we draw near to you, we know that you draw near to us. And so, Holy Spirit, move among us as we worship and turn our attention toward you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder, we're in that season where we're singing with our masks on. So, let's worship together. Well, good morning and welcome to Regen. For those of you who are in the room with us and for those of you joining us online, we are glad to be together with you today. And we just, um, our hope and our prayer is that you would really just experience the presence of the Lord today as we sing and hear from scripture and are just together. We met for a time of prayer um, before the service and this was just one of the verses that someone read that stuck out to me. So I just wanted to share it with you. It's from Psalm 11, verse seven. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. And so our prayer is just that you would behold the face of the Lord today as we are together um, in this place. Just a couple of quick announcements. If you um, are new to Regen or have not yet signed up for our Reconnect email, we'd invite you to do that. There are cards in the back on your way out. There's a black round table that has um, hay cards on it. So if you fill that out with your email, that will sign you up for our Reconnect. If you give us your cell phone number, that will sign you up for um, our text alerts so that you can know when to register for your seats and just other announcements about things that are going on here at Regen. We just want to be able to connect with you and give you the information that you need to know um, what's happening here within our spiritual family. And I think that's all of our announcements for right now. So we're gonna go ahead and move into our giving liturgy time. And we started doing this giving liturgy as a way to connect our giving with what our church is doing. Because in this season where we're not passing plates and maybe you're giving online instead of doing it in person, we wanna make sure that we're doing that with a mind toward what God wants to do with our money. So I'm gonna invite you to join me um, in reciting our giving liturgy. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds 
who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. We just sang about how his love always finds us and uh, just have just such a sense that God has set out to find somebody in this place today. And so wherever your wanderings have been, God's brought you to this place to find, so that you can be found and that you can find him. And so as we turn our attention to your word this morning, Father, we pray that we would hear you. Even in a passage that's weighty and kind of big, that we would hear you. When we are confronted by your bigness and your mystery, that we would embrace you and your purposes in our lives. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible, we will be in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 4. Our oversight team meeting, our oversight team met this week, and an oversight team is not a group of people that gather to forget things. Oversight, you see what I'm saying? Uh, but we view it as our job to shepherd the flock among us, and so we were processing our, our time at the Naturally Supernatural conference last week and really felt a pretty strong invitation into prayer, and so our oversight team gathered at 10.15 this morning just to pray over this time, and in the weeks to come, they would like to let you know, we would like to let you know that if there's something that you need prayer for in your life, that they would love to pray with you before the service from 10.45 to 11, or sometime after the service, and um, we're going to try to bring back post-gathering prayer this week, and so what that will look like is we'll be kind of inviting you either into the overflow room, we've created an overflow room that has a TV that's broadcasting exactly this, just another space in the church, so that if we overflow, we can go in there, and so they'll, you can pray with them there, some of them will use my office, but the oversight team, that is Randy and Jaris Banning, that's Art and Pam Cooper, that's Harry and Kathy Britt, and that's Steph and myself. And so that's one of the ways we'll be pressing into that. So after the service, if you need prayer, you can just move to the back and one of them will meet you. And then I'm literally thinking about the logistics of this for the first time. So does this sound good? Go straight into the Otterbine room, which is just past our friend Linda's shoulder. It's an open room there. And Linda will, in addition to caring for Jade, will be Vanna White and show you where to go. So Acts chapter 4, let's get into it, okay? This is going to get weird, just it's going to get weird real fast. People are going to die. It's fun, okay? Uh, Heavenly Father, would you give me words, uh, may the meditations of my heart, may this preparation I've undergone this week, may it be fruitful to us, may it help us to be disciples, may we hear you, amen. When I was in high school, uh, my, my parents divorced, and uh, that meant in a season um, 
when a lot of my friends were just partying it away. I was partying it away and just taking on some more responsibility in our home to help my mom and to take care of my younger brothers. And uh, I remember it was about this time of year, I remember that uh, we had huge trees in our front yard. We're having an amazing fall, aren't we? It's just great. And I remember all of these, le- all of our big trees in our yard, the leaves had fallen and it was now my responsibility to rake those up or do something. And I thought the wise thing to do was just to wait till they'd all fallen into one pile, right? That's, duh. And so, um, so I started out there trying to get my own brothers to help me out. We get hungry. We go inside to eat and uh, we, we come back out and I, and I all of a sudden find two of my best friends at the time, Mike and Tony, out in the front yard raking the leaves. And I, I didn't ask them to come. I don't even really know how they knew I was doing that, or at least I don't remember how. But that began really, uh, over that year, an experience where Mike and Tony were very faithful to come alongside of me and help with stuff around my house, help me do stuff around our house. I remember being really grateful for that, and I remember looking back, that really was one of my first experiences of what it means to be a spiritual family. It was sharing time and talent, and in some cases, treasure, to my benefit. And as we turn to Acts chapter 4, we get a glimpse of the early church operating not as an organization, not as a communist cult, but as a spiritual family, as a spiritual family. So Acts chapter 4 Find me in verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind. One of the, just pause for a second, one of the big things that we really also sense is we're really trying to figure out what it looks like for us as a church to move from mere liking each other to loving each other. Okay. The, uh, so they were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. In this paragraph, Luke tells us of the early churches resolved to be generous, the release of their resources, and the result of their giving. The early church resolved, resolved to be generous. They were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. Their unity was so intense and so real that it led them to share their possessions with one another. They believed that what was theirs was not only theirs. And so they released those resources to others. They shared what they had to the extent that some among them sold land or houses and gave the proceeds to the apostles, and the apostles distributed it. And the result of their generosity was that there was no needy person among them. That's why we pray that every week. I'm resolved to be generous so that there would be no needy person among us. And, and if you think about what's happening sociologically in the early church at this point, the early church is predominantly made up of poor people. Obviously, there are some wealthy people in it who have land or other possessions to sell, but this predominantly poor church was marked by having no need among them. So why is this the case? Why did the early church engage in this behavior? It is not communism, nor is it forced communism. 
The early church was not obligated to engage in this kind of behavior. Instead, it was a free response to God's blessing in their midst. Did you notice that in verse 33, it says, God's great blessing was upon them all. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. God blesses us materially or in any other way so that we can bless others. And in response to that blessing in their midst, the early, the early church was stirred up into generosity. The early church was stirred up into giving. This is kind of like how it says in one of the letters to the Corinthians, um, none of you should give under compulsion but willingly because God loves a cheerful giver. They were not being, it was not compulsory to do this. It was just an act of, of reaction and response to God's generosity. What we're not seeing here is something forced. What we are seeing here is something that looks a lot like spiritual family. These acts of generosity and support about members of spiritual family come because that's what families do. And Steph has talked about this a little bit in her sermon on being a gathered and scattered church. Um, right now, by the way, weeks later, the Byler shovel is still in our garage, in case any of you are wondering, including you, Jenna. Um, the shovel is there. And, uh, and, and so we share possessions as extended family because that's what healthy extended family does. We share our resources to bless one another. When I uh, was serving over at Grace Church, there was a line in the budget there called the Good Samaritan line. And that line was kind of a pastor discretionary line. I could use it to materially financially bless anybody in our congregation and the only person that would know about it was me, that person, and the people who cut the checks. Uh, when we were going over the budget for uh, this year here at Regen, we had brought the Good Samaritan line over because I thought that was cool. Uh, but what we renamed it to was the 434 fund. Why? Acts 434 says there were no needy people among them. Right? So what we have as a church is this spot where we can give over and above to that helps us meet tangible material needs in our community. Um, and, and, and here's the interesting thing about that. It is not blind giving. It is not blind throwing away of money. Because in a family... I know what's going on in your life, don't I? And so I'm not just kind of handing you money and walking away, but it's an invitation into a deeper level of care. We have a 434 fund, um, and you can actually now give to it online in the drop-down. You can give over and above to that to help meet needs. We use it after families have babies or after a death or in a transition or whammo, a giant furnace goes out, for example just a random occurrence that came to my mind now, Holden. Um, so we have this, and, and it's, this is why we pray every week that God would stir us to be generous until the point that there would be no needy person among us. The goal is, as a spiritual family, that there isn't somebody in our midst who is struggling silently. Nor is the goal that we just kind of give them money willy-nilly, because Paul also says in Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yikes. So there's this tension of the community coming alongside to meet these needs. And out of obedience to scripture, we change the name from Good Samaritan to, to the 434 fund. We want to make sure that there is no one in our community that has a need that we can't help, right? Does that sound good to you or not? Okay. Now, if you could all pull out your wallets and bring your money and lay it at my feet, because that's what they did. No. 
It's not an act of obligation. It's an act of conscience. It's, it's God leading and prompting people to respond. And so as Acts 4 goes on, there's a positive example and a negative example. There's a positive example and there's a negative example. So the positive example is in verses uh, 36 and 37. For instance, okay, if you're reading the Bible and it says for instance, it's a little clue to let you know, like, this is an example, right? For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Have you ever dropped something on your toe and said, son of encouragement? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) He was from the tribe of Levi, came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Positive example. Isn't that nice that he did that? Verse 1 of chapter 5, but, uh uh-oh, okay, this gets real. I'm just going to read a little further than I want, and then we'll unpack it, okay? But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought the part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount, okay? I made made 10,000 off the sale, but I brought 7,500 and said that was all I made. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter, said to, then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. Give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying us, to us, but to God. Verse 5. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. I texted Julie, I read this on Monday to start prepping, and I texted Julie, I said, what songs do we have for don't lie to the church about the money you give, otherwise you might die? Which, which song goes with that? Our temptation in these moments is to do what? Okay, let's see if this is a metaphor for something. Let's see if we can escape the full weight of biblical authority by minimizing the story or dancing around it. I'm here to tell you that because Ananias and Sapphira sinned, they died. And I'm here today to tell you that there can be ongoing flagrant sin in your life that is so persistent and so real that God, out of love for you, may choose to remove you from the earth rather than have you damage you, your family, and the community to any greater length. Aren't you glad you came to church today? We're having fun. This is good. So let's, let's see if we can unpack this just a touch. Okay, so... Ananias and Sapphira, they're two members of the Jerusalem church. They present to the apostles proceeds from a sale of property, and they have agreed ahead of time that they will keep a portion back for themselves. They agree ahead of time, we're going to keep a portion of this back from themselves. And as, as Ananias goes to give the money to the apostles for it to be distributed to the community, uh, The Holy Spirit gives Peter an insight, a revelation of what's actually happening. So he says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've kept some of the money for yourself. Verse 4 is really important. The property that was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. Ananias wasn't being forced to do this and therefore lied about it to make it easier on himself. Ananias took something that was optional and used it as an opportunity to improve him and his standing in the community. 
This is what makes the sin particularly flagrant and duplicitous. And to us, it seems like a small infraction. Doesn't it? What's the big deal if they give a big chunk of the money and keep it to themselves? It's not, except for the fact that they lied about it. They could have said, hey, we're going to sell this property, but things are a little tight for us, so we're going to keep about 20% of it. The rest the church can have. Do you know what Peter would have said? Thank you so much. But it's that they sell it, keep some of the money back, and decide ahead of time to keep it for themselves. And Peter goes so far as to say they are under the influence of the evil one. This is of grave seriousness to the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I make dough, I make bread, and uh, when you put yeast in there, it doesn't just make part of the dough rise, it makes the whole dough rise. And if you're not a baker, how many of you have ever put like a red shirt with a whole bunch of whites in the washer? What happens? It comes out pink, don't it, right? A little bit of sin in the community can spread. The private sin of Ananias and Sapphira threatens, it just threatens the whole community. It threatens to rip apart the spiritual family and to derail the mission. And so, verse 5, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. Ananias is denied the basic honorary burial rights given to any Jewish person at this time. He's not given calling hours. There's no PowerPoint on the screen of all the happy moments of his life. We don't get to come. There's not a funeral. We don't go to the graveside. No. Wrap him in a sheet, bury him, get it done with. Then three hours later, look at verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Verse 8 is really important because Peter is actually giving Sapphira a chance to repent. She could have said, actually, we decided to lie about it. We actually brought in this much. But because of her flesh, because of her allegiance that's given to the enemy right now, she says, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think about this? How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the, I love this line. The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. If you're Sapphira, aren't you like, I'm sorry, what, come again now? <laughs> right? If you're the guy that just buried him, you're like, ah, oh, come on, seriously, again? I'm the guy that's burying people. I'm tired, you know, in the background. We already dug one, we got to dig another. Sapphira's given a chance to repent. She lies instantly, verse 10. She fell to the floor and died. The young men came in and saw that she was dead. They, I think the Greek says, they rolled their eyes. And they... <laughs> They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In both cases, in verse 10, instantly she fell to the floor and died. And then in verse 5, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. It's important to notice a couple things. One, it explicitly says, it ex- or at least it explicitly does not say that God killed them. Does it? Nor does it say that Peter struck them dead. 
Although there's, there's a fair argument to be made that there are good miracles and bad miracles. And this is a bad kind. Jesus curses a fig tree and it withers and dies. Verse 12 of chapter 5 says the apostles continued to go on make, doing many miracles. So it's almost like an indication of these are sometimes the kind of miracles they did. But in either case, it, it does not say that Peter struck her dead or announced her dead. It does not say that God struck her dead. Nor does it say she had a heart attack because of the stress and fell to the ground and had a cardiac event. We'll get into why that is important. And this is why. Their sin finds them out. Their sin finds them out. Paul says, I think in Titus, he says, some, some sin runs ahead to judgment and some sin lags behind. Some sin runs ahead to judgment and this sin ran ahead to judgment. Sin, at its core, is pushing God away. Sin is pushing God away. Sin is, on the cosmic level, exactly what I see Jack doing. No data, I'll do it. And I'm thinking, well, you've got a key. You're very near an electrical outlet. I know something you don't know, right, to protect you and keep you safe. Ananias and Sapphira engage in willful, flagrant sin. Made especially flagrant because what they chose to do was optional, not obligatory. They push God away. His protective presence is removed. They are handed over to the enemy to do what he always does, steal, kill, and destroy. Romans 6 comes into effect here. What does Romans 6 say? For the wages of sin are, is death, right? The wages of sin is death. And a lot of times we assume that that passage is an explanation to people far from Jesus why they need to stop sinning. But did you, if you notice the context of Romans 6, Romans 6, 7, and 8, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about the Christian life. We can engage in flagrant, ongoing, persistent sin in such a way that the most loving thing for God to do for us and for our community is to remove us. I had a professor at Moody who believes this is the case with his adult daughter. She'd made a confession of faith at one point in her life, made a confession of faith a couple times in her life. But a series of drugs, alcohol, in and out of rehab, in and out of jail, in and out of trouble with the law, she finally died. And the professor said, it seems to me that God removed her before she could do any more damage. We can engage in sin that is so willful and ongoing and persistent and real, that is such an offense to the holiness of God that we finally receive the wages that sin pays. The wages of sin is death. And some sin runs ahead to judgment and some sin lags behind. And here P Peter pronounces judgment. Ananias and Sapphira fall dead. And verse 11 says, great fear gripped the entire church. You think? Great fear. And the word fear is actually better rendered as awe. They were not afraid of God. They were awed by his power. And isn't there a fine line between those two things? Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who had heard what had happened. See, this verse is notable because this is the first time in Acts that the believers are called the church. Every other time up to this point in Acts, the believers, the brothers and sisters... But here in Acts 5, 
they become the church. See, something has happened where they have matured. This happened actually at a certain point here at Regen, by the way. We had to decide whether or not we were just going to be a loose group of friends that like to hang out and do Jesus stuff together, or are we going to be a church? There's a fine line between being a faith community and a group of friends and hanging out and doing the Jesus thing and being a church. There's a weight of responsibility that comes on the mission and the vision and what we do and our care for one another. And this has finally happened to the church. They become a church. They've just crossed over and they're so fragile and they're so vulnerable in this state that the enemy is looking for any opportunity to tear it down. And so he uses Ananias and Sapphira to do it. This passage is profoundly difficult to grapple with. And it's really difficult to grapple with for you and for me because we are 21st century, individualistic, American, Western Christians. If, if right now you and I were reading this passage in Cuba, in South America, in Africa, in the Middle East, even right now we would have no problem believing half of what just happened. Because American, as, as Americans, we pride ourselves on our individualism, right? And so we read the Bible and it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And when we see the word you, it mean, you assume that Paul is using the singular you, you, Terry, you, Paul, you, Tessa. But actually, what the Bible actually doesn't talk about individuals, it talks about groups. It's not by grace you personally have been saved, it's by grace y'all have been saved. The Bible deals on an assumption of group identity. God deals with people on an assumption of group identity. God sees the groups before he sees the individuals. It's not that he doesn't love the individuals, but he sees the group. And so maybe we can look at Ananias and Sapphira's sin and start to grapple with the weight of that individual act of sin, but we wrestle with the strength of a response to that sin that only comes because God sees the danger post to the group. We can maybe get Ananias and Sapphira's individual act of sin, but as Western scientized individuals in America, we're not convinced by the reality of spiritual warfare that very much plays a role in this passage. And as American evangelicals who have insisted on that God's love before God's holiness... We struggle that a loving God would cast someone down in this way. There's this interesting thing that happens in church history, by the way. Prior to the Second Great Awakening, even prior to about 1820s when my boy Dwight L. Moody started evangelizing, do you know what preachers preached about? They preached about God's holiness. They preached about God's otherness. And then in the 1800s, they said, well, that's, that's a little harsh, isn't it? And there were good reasons to make this missional change, by the way. But then they started preaching about God's love. And then what started to happen is we started to prioritize God's love over all of his other attributes. And so we just can't comprehend the fact that God would behave in this way. This whole passage, is, by the way, is explained in a book by, I, I did not read it, I found after the fact. It's called God Behaving Badly. So what I want to do is, in our final moments together, it should only take about an hour and a half, is I want to unpack the biblical worldview and the four elements at play that help us see this passage of, of Scripture more clearly. Because what's really at play here is individual sin, corporate identity, God's holiness, and spiritual warfare, spiritual threat. So let's just talk about each of those for a second. Because 
Here we see in Acts 4 and 5, in Acts 5, we see an individual isolated act of sin. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Why does it matter how much they gave? But it matters because Ananias and Sapphira take an optional free will moment to make themselves look better than they really are. Should I back up so you can see this one perhaps? There we go. They do not sin in a matter of obligation. They sin in a matter of conscience. And they're doing it to make themselves seem better than they really are. And, and that's what makes their sin so duplicitous and so dangerous is that they're violating what Paul will later say in Romans 12. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Actually, Paul says this. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Okay, he's got, this is going to be big. Don't think you're better than you really are. And there are moments, aren't there, that I feel this as a spiritual leader, I feel this as an Enneagram 3, I feel this as so many levels, that we want to present a better image of ourselves than how we really are, don't we? Let me lead with my strengths. Let me lead with my abilities. Let me hide my imperfections. Let me skirt around my weaknesses. There are moments that we want to make ourselves look more holy, more mature, more spiritual than we really are. And this seems small to us. And it's huge to God. And it's huge to God on, first, on two reasons. First, God hates it when we lie. He hates it when we lie. But do you know why he hates it when we lie, especially when we lie about ourselves? Because he loves us precisely as we are. To speak about love for a second. And when we present ourselves as something different than we really are, we're presenting something that he doesn't, we're, we're saying that his love isn't enough. We're presenting to everybody a copy, a knockoff, and he loves the original. Imperfections, flawed, he wants to call us into holiness. The individual sin in this passage is that they think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. They present themselves as better than they really are. But then there's this piece of corporate identity, isn't there? There's this individual layer of sin. This, this passage is like ogres, and ogres are like onions. Remember, we learned this in Shrek. This passage has layers. So we peel back the layer of individual sin, and we find the layer of corporate guilt and corporate identity. As we read the Bible, we see that God operates on assumption, on the assumption of corporate identity. He sees the group. He sees the individual. And because God sees the whole community at once, and because God sees how an individual act of sin, even an act of sin done in private, can infect the whole body, God deals aggressively with sin. Here, here's, here's what happens. When we come to Christ, we become intimately connected with one another. We become intimately connected with one another. We become a body. What happens when a doctor finds in a body cancer? What we don't say is, let's not tell anybody about it and just see if it'll go away. We go to war, don't we? We get so aggressive with that cancer. We get real with that cancer. Why? Because the last thing we want is the cancer to metastasize to another part of the body. 
So I sin, and I think it doesn't bother you, and it doesn't bother you, and it doesn't bother you, because what I do in my own time and what you do in your own time, these are separate things. But God sees us as a group and as a family before he sees us as individuals, and he sees my sin as a, has the possibility to metastasize to you and get worse. This is why the Old Testament, by the way, deals so aggressively with sin. Uh, this whole passage, by the way, overlays on top of uh, Joshua chapter 7 and the sin of Achan. Uh, they're supposed to, the Israelites were supposed to destroy the city of Jericho, a guy named Achan, not Clay Achan, just Achan. Um, <laughs> does he sing If I Were Invisible? Because that's now what's going on in the background of my head. Um, this Achan could wish he was invisible at this moment. So he steals some stuff from the city that they were supposed to destroy, and eventually his sin is found out. And do you know what they do to him? They stone him, they stone his family, they stone his children, they stone his servants, and they stone his livestock. They, they go full blast chemo radiation on that because they know it could metastasize the community. See, Ananias and Sapphira's sin is so flagrant because here at the early outset of the church, this sin could derail the mission and destroy the family. It could metastasize to something, somebody else in the community and deceit could take root. Or even worse, wow, Ananias and Sapphira are so godly. Let's put them in charge of the money. Five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years goes by, and what do we find out? They've been embezzling the whole time. The sin had to be dealt with so aggressively in order to protect the community. And so I, I say to you today, your sin is very much of interest to me. My sin is very much of interest to you. Not so I can police you and yell at you and scream at you, but so I can be the face of Jesus to you in your sins so that we together can become a community of holiness. Our spiritual depth and hunger as a church will only be as deep as the shallowest member of our body. We will only be corporately as holy as the least holy member of our spiritual family. So what I do in private very much matters to you. What you do in private very much matters to me because we are a body, we are connected. Individual sin, corporate identity, spiritual threat. Peel back the layers. Peter tells Ananias and Sapphira that not only have they made a mistake, but they are under the influence of Satan. Whether or not they are fully aware of it, Ananias and Sapphira have been so influenced by the evil one that they have been given an assignment to destroy the community. They've been given an assignment to destroy a community. This is why your sin and my sin is a very much of interest to each other because there's a place where, and we talked about this last week, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. That the enemy can kind of start to leverage our flesh against us and now we're finding against the church, the whole church. This individual act of sin threatens to derail the mission and destroy the family. And here's how. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and now Acts is its sequel. And there are moments where Luke is intentionally laying Acts on top of Luke for us to help them understand each other. And this is one of those moments. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes up out of the water after his baptism. He's driven into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And Satan's aim in that moment is to destroy the mission at that moment. 
Jesus is just about to launch his public ministry after 30 years of being a carpenter. He's just about to go public with the gospel of the kingdom, and the enemy chooses that very exact moment to see if he can't destroy the mission and derail the family. Jesus withstands the temptations of the evil one, and the mission goes forward and actively, what do we know in the end? The enemy is conquered. The same thing is happening here in Luke 4, in Acts 5. At the outset of the mission, we've just become a church. We're hitting this new place of momentum and maturity. Let's see if I can't use these people's sin to destroy the whole thing. The enemy can use our private sin to destroy our community. Your private sin may be part of the enemy's larger strategy to destroy our church. And I don't say that to get us treating one another with suspicion. I say that that we want to start taking prayer very seriously as a church that we're praying protection over one another and that we find ways to give freedom to one another. This is why scripture says confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. If I'm confessing my sin to people regularly, there's nothing in the background that Satan can use to destroy us. But if I've got a long list of private sin that nobody knows about, then the enemy has a playground and a whole weapons arsenal, a gun safe, to take us down. Individual sin, corporate identity, spiritual threat, we will love you through it. We've had some moments, by the way, over the last four months where we have done some, what I would describe as deliverance ministry with people in our spiritual family. That is people who are saying, oh my gosh, this thing that I thought in my life was this thing is actually demonic influence I need prayed for. And so we pray into the authority that Jesus gives and we're seeing massive breakthrough for people. This is very real. And it's real because as a church, we're, we're pushing in on some areas that the enemy doesn't like. And I don't say that to set us up as the hero, by the way. I'm just saying to state the fact that if you want to be outside of any kind of battle zone, it would be good to go to a different kind of church. But we decided to go to war, right? Individual sin, corporate identity, spiritual threat, and God's holiness. The final onion peel is God's holiness. It's the Holy Spirit's presence among them. The Holy Spirit isn't just there to empower, as he does in Acts 2, or in Acts 3, to make these miracles happen. The Holy Spirit is in our midst as an agent of accountability and expression of the holiness of God. And God's holiness is expressed in a zeal for you and for me. God don't play games. He's not your high school girlfriend. He's not good with you liking that girl and that girl. No, he wants all of you, all of your mind and all of your heart. And his zeal to protect the family, his zeal of love for them, causes Ananias and Sapphira to fall dead when their sin finds them out, when, when their sin pushes his protective covering away. The early church, when that happened, when they encountered the holiness of God, they experienced awe. Not all. Christians learn to like cute more than they like to learn holy. They, they learn to like cute more than they like holiness. Because cute is friendly and cuddly. Holiness scares us. So we go for awe instead of It's the holiness of God in our midst. If you've got secret sin in your life, your problem really ultimately isn't with me. It's ultimately with the Lord. That's, as we say in our house, that's between you and Jesus. 
And so the bottom line of this passage, <clears throat> there's an invitation and there's a challenge. I'm going to invite staff to lead response time. And the invitation is to be generous and to live as a family and share our resources and to bless one another so that there would be no need among us. But the challenge is, I don't just share with you my resources, I share with you my holiness. I don't just share with you my money, I share my passion for God. The challenge is, be aggressive with your sin, not out of shame, but, but out of an eagerness to see more and more breakthrough in our community. I am... Um, Our title of the series is that the gospel will be unhindered. That the gospel will be unhindered, that the kingdom of God will be unhindered. And this is a glimpse into that, that the good news is that even when we bring our sin, even when we bring our folly, even when we bring our deceit, God's kingdom will not be stopped. Steph, why don't you come and Um, first, I just, as we were in our prayer time before the service, um, kind of one of the things that came to mind for one of the people who was praying with us was just this idea of the cynic. And so I just want to invite you, if you're here today and you're feeling really cynical about this whole thing, about Jesus, about the Bible, about Scripture, I just, we want you to know that you're welcome, that you've been prayed for, that we um, invite you to bring your questions and your concerns, and we would love for you to, to journey with us through that. And so we, I just want to issue that invitation if that's for anyone here today. Uh, the second thing that really came to my mind as, as Kyle was preaching was I was thinking about how um, Peter asked Sapphira, he gave her the chance to repent. And I think that's just such good news, you know, in the midst of a really heavy sermon that God's invitation to us is to repent and to be healed. And in fact, in Romans, it says that the Lord's kindness leads us to repentance. It is his kindness that highlights our sins so that we can confess and repent and be healed and be different and be free. So um, my invitation to you this morning, um, the band is going to play for a little bit um, and we'll sing after that. But just uh, my invitation to you is um, where do you need freedom? Where is the father? Where is his kindness inviting you to freedom today? Um, and, and as always, if there's someone that's safe that you could share that with, I'd invite you to do that and to really let, um, let's be Jesus to one another. Let's offer that forgiveness to one another. And then afterwards, if there's anyone who wants prayer, I just want to invite you again to go back to the Otterbein room and someone from the oversight team will be there. So if that's something that you sense that you need today, um, we want to be that safe place for you. There's a, there's a tension in preaching in which we are called to share what is hard and what sounds like bad news while proclaiming the good news. And so hear the good news. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice on our wonderful new relationship with God because of what our Lord Jesus has done to make us friends with God. Let's sing together. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. If you need prayer, our over team is in the Otterbine room, which you just go out those doors, you'll see a door right by the window, walk through there, so we'll be glad to pray with you. If not, we'd love to invite you to just head outside and we can hang out and chat there. Your mission today is talk to at least two people you don't know. So, love you. We'll see you next week.